This is the Horse Radio Network. This is Episode 72 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisors, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. And today we have two scientists, sort of. One is a legitimate Dr. Veronica Fowler and Monty Roberts, who also has been known to participate in a science trial. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thank you for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month. And I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad you're here to be with this one because uh, Veronica is a lot of fun, and she's a gal in a horse business but completely different than what you and I usually get to talk to. And she has that cute little English accent. Wasn't that fun? She had lovely little to her voice and very science weenie, which I love. Yes, very much. She's geeky that way. And I love that about her too, because she's always thinking. But she loves her horses. She has thoroughbreds and she has little kids. And she's just really in that really busy part of her life. And it's a lot of fun. And I thought, well, she and Monty did a science trial together a few years back, and it was published in this um, journal, a scientific journal called Anthrozoos. And, you know, it's really in the geekyville, you know, it really is in not what us horse people would just pick up and read, you know, on waiting for the doctor at the doctor's <laughs> office, right? Yeah, no, no. This is not one you're going to find under the front seat of the pickup truck. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not found too many places, but with Mr. Google, you can find it, Anthrosus. Um, but the fascinating thing was, it was like these two came together after Veronica had taken some courses, some join-up courses and some introductory courses over in England. She said, golly, why, you know, I write equine science papers. Why isn't there something about join-up that's quantified, you know? Yeah, good science work, quantified. And uh, dad said, well, make it happen. And darned if they didn't. So it's really interesting. It, you, you're not going to believe how much goes into these things. It's, it's really interesting. There's a reason not everybody does science trials. Yeah. It's really hard to do. <laughs> They're hard to do. They're expensive. And it's hard to corral people long enough to get results that, you know, are juried and all. It, it, it's an amazing backflip, you know, just and it's yeah. expensive. It's it's all those things. And, um, and, and you have to be so careful about you can't even like run out and get a bunch of sponsors because then like, oh, are they invested in, you know, yes. is it going to be skewed? You know, yeah. all these things. It's just crazy. But they prevailed. They're patient people. And uh, they did, sh they used, well, you'll hear some of this. I don't want to give too much away. Wait, but all the good stuff. No spoilers. No, I'm just so excited to talk about it. But it, 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 it was really fun. I think people are going to enjoy it. So shall we get them started? Get them started. Okay. Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate. He's a sugar bear. <laughs> You know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament, and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios. 
risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at ifa.com. That's IFA as an index fund advisors. Or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. Well, Dr. Veronica Fowler possesses a BSc. Uh, which is in animal science. That's those, you know, terms that they give to doctors. And an MSc in equine science and a PhD in virology. Veronica has held scientific roles both at the veterinary institutes and non-government organizations as well, like the Brook, which are involved in animal welfare and uh, veterinary business, livestock, and equines. They, uh, she has developed and she um, has keeps creating better ways to deal with her horses and her animals based in science. And she goes off to developing countries as well. So currently, Veronica is in the applied diagnostics research uh, business, and w- her research is concentrating on epidemiology and the development of simple, rapid point-of-care diagnostics for the detection of diseases affecting farm animals like cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, and, of course, horses. Veronica undertakes capacity development in a number of developing countries, providing training to local authorities, veterinarians, and livestock owners on how they can take action to control and prevent infectious animal diseases. We're just lucky to have her. Well, welcome, Dr. Fowler. Hi, Veronica. How are you? Hi, Debbie. I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for staying up late over in the UK so that we get some of your knowledge. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Well, you're an interesting one because you have gone so long studying uh, from the science side of it, horses and people too, and obviously horses are fine. It's the people we're really working on. And I, I, you know, I've been remiss in getting you on to talk about this fantastic mounting of a science trial that you did back in 2012. And I wanted to share you with our audience and um, let people know a little bit about what goes on to produce a science trial, why you did it, you know, and and then ultimately how it was published. And and we won't go into a whole dissertation here because I know you can do one of those things, right? <laughs> yeah, I have I have three to my name. <laughs> there we are, uh, hence Doctor Veronica Fowler, um, and uh, you know I, I would like to just uh, explain to people that science and horses don't necessarily live in two different worlds, and I think if you agree with me that the worlds are coming closer together, is that right? Yep. I would agree with you. That's nice. It's nice in that, you know, I think we can start to get some consistency in training if everybody is uh, able to share information. And I think that's what you guys set out to do with this science trial. Yeah, that's really the key. That's Uh one of the motivating factors behind the study when we did it. Good. And and people should know that you're a horsewoman as well. (laughs) I am. I've had many horses to my name. At the moment, I still have four. But, um... I'm always collecting. <laughs> a woman after our own heart. All and who doesn't side. collect an occasional horse, right? Oh, very well, occasional. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and you um you have a business now that still involves horses, am I right? Uh yes, I still um help people with behavioral issues with their horse and sort of communicating science advancements um to the general public essentially, so that everybody has access to important information and it's just not held solely within the scientific field. 
Well, that just warms my heart and dad's as well, Monty Roberts, because, uh, you, you know, I think everybody knows uh, that knows his, his techniques that um, he often says, uh, my way is, you know, the, the best way today for me. But if you show me a better way, that'll be my way tomorrow. <laughs> and, and he kind of winks when he says it, but he really means it. And he gives credit to those that have, have done it before. So how did you meet Monty the first time? Why did you have a relationship first with horses? Well, interesting. I actually met Monty through Kelly and, um, it was quite funny because I went, I, as a scientist, I'm always, you know, motivated to learn more, um, as is Monty, actually. And I came across Kelly in, in that she runs some courses in the UK. Kelly Marks. Um, yeah. Kelly Marks as an accredited um, Monty, Monty Roberts horse trainer. Right. And she ran a course um, called Horse Psychology. And I thought, you know what, that's exactly for me. I really want to go and find out what um, Kelly Marks has to say about horse psychology. Mm. And I went with a little bit of scepticism because, you know, you have this split between um, what we might describe as a cowboy or, you know, an actual pure horse trainer and what we might describe as an academic. And I probably sit in the middle of the fence, but probably slightly more towards the academic side. So I was really keen to learn what she had to say about horse psychology. And I went on the course and at the end of it, and I thought, oh, my God, she actually knows what she's talking about. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it was it was through her that I, you know, was able to learn a little bit more about Monty. Um, obviously, you know, most of his work, um, he has a huge following all around the world. But I think it's obviously greater in the US as, than it is in the UK. And so, you know, through the channel of Kelly, I, I, I um, managed to have the, the pleasure of meeting him. And it was in early discussions with him where he asked me, you know, what what's the problem with um, in the academic world with understanding what we do as you know practical horse trainers? And I was like, well, you know, really what the issue is is lack of communication between what might be seen as two sort of silos, mm. where um, you know each and every one in those silos is working for the same goal, but they don't work um, together and they don't exchange information. And, you know, some of the things that have been published um, within the equine scientific world have been great. And we learn, we've learned so much mm -hmm. um, about um, training techniques which can lead to confusion and abuse in horses. And we know so much more from those studies. And they're generally objective, they're well balanced, and they have a, you know, a base on um, analysis of specific data mm -hmm. that was collected to, during dedicated studies. But then we find the articles that are, you know, describing the use of the round pen training um, with conclusions drawn on, on the use of this method. And I, I at the time found it quite surprising that they it's quite common to find sentences such as uh, round pen training induces fear and provokes the flight response. This is a dangerous training method because horses can make associations between a fearful state and an aggressor. And um, horses, it allows a horse to add the flight response um, to its interaction with humans. Now, it's quite interesting in that those words themselves have a lot of meaning behind them. Mm. And there's interpretation that's been put um, on training techniques, such as, you know, to, to use the word fearful implies that the horse is fearful. To use the word aggressor implies that that person who's in the middle of the round pen has gone in with the intention of being an aggressor mm -hmm. and that when the horse is moving away, um, 
that that is the flight response. So right. I find those those three words in themselves very interesting. But unfortunately, um, there's huge flaws in publishing things like that in that I'm yet to see a published article which conclusively shows that horses being trained within a round pen environment are overtly fearful. They perceive the person in the middle of, of the round pen as an aggressor and that training undertaken with these environments is less effective. Yeah. Now, that's the, that's, the, that's the justification in a lot of scientific papers as to why round pen training shouldn't be used. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, that, that was kind of my main motivation um, with my first interactions with Monty is that, you know, hang on, this, you know, Monty's getting quite a lot of unfair press mm-hmm. where very strong emotional words are being used, mm-hmm. but actually they have no scientific basis mm-hmm. yeah. to, to base them on. Right. So, so you, you know, s- I, yeah, sorry. so you set out to study then yeah. that on, on its, on the surface first, it was just about round pinning and the fairness or unfairness of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, I, I had no standpoint. Uh, I, I don't sit on a Monty fence. I don't sit on a conventional horse training fence. I'm completely your traditional scientist, which is motivated to test a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And, I and you know, with the equine science background that I've got, I'm interested in, um, you know, generating data that we can use objectively to improve human horse interactions. So, I was, I thought, you know what, it's going to take a long time to convince Monty to even listen to a scientist. (laughs) And then secondly, allow a scientist to actually measure um, the response of horses to his training. Yeah. And that's really interesting, Veronica. So one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking about that is what is said to be the stressors of the training? What, What is actually being claimed to be a stressor in the training? Well, I mean, it's probably... A good idea that I describe really what they're, they're talking about when they when they refer to a stressor. So, a stressor, as defined, um, can be anything that's an environmental condition or an external stimulus or even a chemical or like biological agent which results in the activation of the stress resu- response. Wow! And um, so, if you can imagine, every day a horse basically encounters a range of stressors, even when untouched. And like so, things like certain noises and movement, um, you know, can set up, are essentially an environmental stressor. Mm-hmm. And every time that we interact with a horse, we expose the horse to further stressors, such as things like tack, riders, yeah. food. Even food can be a stressor. Mm-hmm. So, but the thing is about horses is that they are amazingly well adapted to environmental stressors, and this is one of the reasons why we're able to domesticate horses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at one of the reasons as to um, one of the characteristics that an animal must have in order to be um, adaptable to domestication, um, one of them is essentially an adaptability to environmental stimulus. Mm -hmm. Um, And what they kind of mean by that is anything that might cause stress. So, um, but, you know, having said that, we do know based on published studies that the application of a first saddle and a first rider, for example, are, are significant stresses for a horse. Mm-hmm. So if you were to look at, you know, a normal training session and, and things that you might be doing in the initial training of a horse or even remedial training for, you know, horses that have unwanted behaviours, mm-hmm. um, two of the most significant things that you can do with a horse are one, to put a saddle on its back and secondly, to then put a rider. Yeah, it's so unnatural, um, right? I mean, it's just counter counter to their yeah. nature. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then and then in addition to that, things like forced backward movements, okay, um, and lunging. I mean, those two are particularly um, considered quite stressful. And what and, and really where they get, you know, that's been defined in science is that um, they're looking for things like increase in heart rate and a reduction in heart rate variability. So you can monitor some physiological parameters which help you define whether. Um, the horse is perceiving that as as hard work or a significant stressor. Okay, so so, so are, can we make a distinction then between a heart rate that's going up because they're exercising, and then a heart rate that goes up? Is this a cortisol level or, that you're you're testing or something? Or what what? How do you describe a stressor that could just be exercise induced? Does yeah, it- now so that so that's an interesting question. And with 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 heart rate alone, you can't do that. So you can't really remove um, heart rate from physical activity. Right. Um, but it's impossible. But so we can look at things. Another parameter that's called heart rate variability, and that is affected by a range of different factors, including exercise. However, at sort of low to moderate exercise intensities, we can use heart rate variability to be able to define which part of the um, nervous oh, system is controlling okay. the heart rate. So you have some sort of baseline to go from. You create. Um, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So we can look at certain. We take the heart rate variability and then we manipulate the data in a way that allows us to look at it from a. Is, is the heart rate being um, influenced by your sympathetic nervous response, which is your increase um, in your flight response, if you like? Mm-hmm. Or we can say, is it being controlled by the parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest, <laughs> I think Monty says? Yeah. Or is it a combination of both? Because they don't always work independently of one another. So we do have clever little ways um, of analysing data, but... You're absolutely right in that when we do analyze this data, we have to look at it in a in a very um, objective uh, way, which allows for all the other variables which can influence that data to affect that data, essentially. Okay. So, so so for the layman here, for, or the, for the person who just trains horses, let's call it that, you know, not a scientist, um, I think it's interesting to note that round pinning, if we want to call it that, before we get too involved in, you know, what's stressing the horse and everything, goes back to like Greco-Roman time, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. this is working a horse in a round pin has been going on forever. Uh, I know it's kind of a new concept if you grew up in sort of the traditional world a hundred years ago, coming out of the military, maybe they didn't use round pins so much, but it really is an old, old method. But what's the difference between somebody who says, hey, I go out in a square arena or a rectangular and I lunge my horse versus <laughs> versus running around other than tethered, what's you know, what is the difference between what somebody would consider kind of scary to go around in a round pin versus lunging? Well, that's quite interesting. And I I mean, I, there hasn't been studies that have specifically used the same horses. Um and studied their response during lunging and also within a round pen, whether or not they're, you know, being used for join up at the time or whether they're just, you know, free exercising in a round pen. Yeah. But my own personal view about it is that when you have a horse in a round pen, you give it at least one choice. And that choice is you can, if I, if I put a bit of pressure on you, you can move away from me. That's a choice. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about, um, 
around Penn as well is that there there is some um, evidence, published evidence, to suggest that the fear response, and this is also true for humans, okay. is that you can you can control um, the activation of a, of a fear response by exercise. Okay. So if you're exercising, you're less likely to get to the same level of um, what your you know fear response would be in any given situation if you're mm. exercising. Now. So the horse has free movement. It's essentially not anchored by a point, which lunging does. You anchor the horse. Mm -hmm. So you're pulling it and you're pushing it at the same time. So you're, you're potentially giving it conflicting cues, which we already know is um, can create confusion in a horse. Mm -hmm. So if you're pulling on it, I mean, I've, I've watched 100 million people lunge horses and yeah. you look at every one of them and you think, my God, what are you doing? And what they essentially train, what they train their horse to do is to, to stand and look at them. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, so, so you're essentially that it's an, it can be not in all cases, but it can be an application of two conf conflicting cues, which you do not get in the round pen because you haven't got hold of the horse's head. And if you say, you know, please move away from me, the horse says, oh, yes, I can do that. And off it goes. Whereas in lunging, you can say, well, I want you to go forward, but not that fast. Mm -hmm. So and then you're pulling the horse back by its head. Right. Um, also, I think the size of the circle, um, although you might go out with the best intentions of lunging your horse on the on the longest line, um, those longest lines are probably still not as long as the would to create the diameter that you would get um, in a round pen. Mm, right. um, yeah. The horse can essentially in a round pen choose its pace. Monty's not chasing it with a lunge whip. He's right. not making contact necessarily. Well, he certainly doesn't use a whip and make contact in a round pen. Right. He might encourage forward movement by the use of a you know a, a long line or whatever Talk, tossing the long line yeah the cotton exactly cotton long line, yeah. but even when he makes contact if he makes contact with that horse it's a gentle that's on your bum and now it's off your bum so it's not there to strike to cause pain yeah it's there as a cue to move forward whereas a lunge whip you know the pure cracking of the lunge whip mm. so you're giving not only are you giving a visual cue you're giving a audio an audio cue as well, and we know in the horse world that the degree to which a horse responds to any given stressor is elevated the more um, cues that are associated with it. So if it's just a visual cue and it doesn't move, mm -hmm. that's okay. If it's a visual cue but it also moves, well, that's not so okay. And then if it's a visual cue which moves and it makes a noise, well, you can forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know if you think about a whip it's it moves it's visual and it makes a noise yeah so you're you're giving the horse the worst of um of of, of all possible scenarios whereas you know encouraging a horse um forward with your body language as well as perhaps you know using um the swishing of a, a rope behind it you yeah. still don't have any um of the audio yeah. So rather rather than a stressor, you're really just driving the horse forward um, with, yeah. your, with your body language. Yeah. Yeah. That makes but sense. But you see, it's, it is quite interesting because there have been studies published on lunging. And actually, the one that I think we're going to talk about in a minute, we had components of lunging within that study. Mm -hmm. And because um, obviously the, the UK conventional technique, which 
we studied alongside Monty uses lunging. It's a typical method that's used um, in British horse society. Uh, right. Society yes. So let's get into that a little bit. So this study was done 2012. It was uh, eventually uh, published in Anthrozoos, which is a respected uh, – um, how would you title that uh, animal-centric uh, scientific journal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And it's basically it's basically a journal that sort of reports um, studies that have been done on animal and human interactions. So it's not just restric- restricted to horses. So it's any animal and human interaction. Yeah, which is really interesting that there are these journals out there, and they're not easy. I mean, you've had two other scientists working with you on it. We should name them too. So it's Dr. Yep. Veronica Fowler and Mark. It was Doc, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Dr. David Marlin, who's a world leading expert um, on equine exercise physiology. Mm-hmm. And we also had Dr. Mark Kennedy, who's a world leading expert in animal welfare. Right, right. So you all are quite learned and quite experienced at all that. So, so you've got those guys behind it, which is probably why Anthrozoos paid attention to this study. <laughs> and and I think it's so interesting to hear how the horses were chosen too. I think people would really love to hear. So, how do you you know do you just pull horse names out of a, uh, a top hat, or how did you? Well, one it? of the first things which is quite tricky to do is to find horse owners who are willing Good to point. share their <laughs> precious animals with you. <laughs> But, but we were very lucky and we did manage to find um, 14 untrained horses from a variety of places in the UK um, and they comprine, uh, comprised four mares and 10 geldings. Um, and what was lovely is we had a mix of breeds, and but we had a close age, age group. So all of our horses were between three and five years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was a lovely, a lovely grouping of horses to be able to have access to um, and have permission from their owners. So all, and, and, all unstarted, all fairly young, all, um, I suppose yep. you had to make sure that they were all healthy and uh, yep. nobody's lame, nobody's lactating, nobody, none of this No, stuff. that's right. <laughs> every, every single horse was checked and um, they were all, all fit and well as per independent veterinary checks. Um, and what was lovely is that we were able to ensure that those horses were um, had never experienced their initial training other than um, they were happy to accept a head collar and to be led and to have minimal contact. So such as, you know, they would allow you to pick their feet up. You could groom them. But apart from that, they were pretty much untouched, okay. um, which was lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to sort of because one of the key things when it comes to a scientific study is that everybody wants a group of horses that are identical. So you want all boys, you want all this breed, you want all this same age, born on exactly the same day. (laughs) But obviously in life that doesn't happen. And actually, you know, when you're going out and you're starting horses for the first time, they're every single different breed you could imagine. So we did have a mix of mares and we did have a mix of geldings and we had a complete mix of um, breeds. And so we know that um, breed, for example, and age and sex can affect horse behavior, mm-hmm. um, as it does with people, <laughs> with humans. And, um, and so it was quite important, given that we had what I would describe as a normal population of horses, what you might expect to be coming into any you know, horse trainer's yard for initial training. We wanted to make sure that um, it was a fair allocation of horses to each trainer. Mm-hmm. So... Prior to the study, the horses arrived um, three, well, it was two to three days in advance of the study. 
And one that was allow, allow, to allow them to habituate to their environment, because as I said earlier, anything can be considered a stressor to a horse. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to make sure that the stable they were in and the arena that they were going to be trained in, that being just the indoor arena, um, was not going to contribute to their response. So that we wanted to basically be specifically measuring the response to the training that was yeah. going on rather than the environment. So what we did, which was quite interesting, is we we allowed um, Monty and the other trainer, who's Phil Roliff, who I think we're going to talk about in a minute, mm -hmm. um, to view the horses. So as they arrived, they came, they were settled for a couple of days and then they were brought into the arena. And we did a, a combination of um, very simple tests with them. One was a handling test. So the horse was led around the outside of the arena and each trainer scored that horse on using a very stringent classification of scores okay. um, on the uh, ease of handling, basically. So how difficult was that horse to handle going around the outside of the arena? Based on that, um, both trainers worked together to pair the horses. So they picked, you know, pairs of horses that had a similar handleability if yeah, you like behavior kind of yeah yeah so. similar, a similar response to being handled in an indoor arena basically That's fair yeah and then so to make it doubly fair we mm. then took those pairs of horses that were paired by the trainers okay and we then exposed them to a novel object test and um oh. in the which is essentially to look at how uh, how a horse response uh, responds when it's startled by something. Okay. And um, in this case, we used an umbrella. Oh, so, that's good. Yeah. I was going to ask you if somebody jumped out <laughs> behind a chair or something. <laughs> no, no. It was an umbrella. But So each horse was asked to individually walk up to the front of the umbrella, and then we would raise the umbrella, and um, we opened it in a split second and then closed it. And the response of each horse was scored again. Wow. And then those responses were st uh, statistically analysed to make sure that there was no difference in the pairing of each horse. And then those horses were then randomly allocated to the trainer. So at no point did each one of those trainers know which horse they were getting. Mm. So it was at the end. So it was in their interests to be extremely fair yeah. in the way that they graded those horses through that process. That's great. So, um, it's kind of like yeah. when we were kids, if we had to split something like a piece of cake or something, one would get to split it and one would have to pick it. So you, you <laughs> have to be fair. Right? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's essentially what we were doing here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So now tell us about the trainers. Uh, we know Monty Roberts and uh, he's just this cowboy from California, right? So you've got a, <laughs> you got a wild, wild west guy. And then tell us about Phil Rollick. Yeah, so uh, Phil Roloff, he he was our UK conventional training trainer, and he essentially represented the British Horse Society um, conventional training technique, um, which has got quite a large following in this country. And uh, historically, it's been a huge uh, sort of society that people have joined if they've had horses from even a young age right up until you know um, way beyond. I don't know what age, but anyway, it, it's got a huge following in this country. And it's kind of the traditional way that horses have been um, trained, probably largely, as you said earlier, come down from the army and how the army did it. And then it's that we've developed a, probably, a society from that. 
A hundred years old? How, how old would it be, this British Horse Society? Well, it's, I think it's 85 years old, if I'm right, know. because I believe okay. that in two, well, it's probably a bit older now. So in 2014, I think it was the 85th year. And I remember it because the, the British Horse Society has a section within it called the Pony Club, which is for its young members. Oh, right. And in in its 85th anniversary, it was the largest youth equestrian organization in the world. Goodness. Yeah. So we're really coming from a traditional world when we talk about the the trainer in Phil. All right. And so, and the study is conducted uh, within a university setting, as I recall, college. Yes, it was an agricultural college. It was Sparsholt Agricultural College, which is in Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and the horses were stabled um, for the, well, we were there for three weeks, but it, well, we were three weeks training, but we were there for probably a month. Um, the horses were stabled in an American barn. It's a lovely setup there. Mm-hmm. The stables are beautiful. The yard facilities are amazing. And we had sole access. So all of our horses um, were the only horses on the yard. And we had access um, to uh, a huge indoor arena, which is where all of the um, training um, took pay took place mm-hmm. so it was it was very secluded um, which in itself is an Perfect. interesting yeah. way of uh, looking mm-hmm. at it yeah because how often do you get that set up it sounds almost like you just you threaded a needle in history to get all the right horses in all the right setup in all the right places <laughs> and um, it, it's amazing and you go into the heart rates and and we don't have time to go into all of that but essentially I mean you got us hanging on the ends of our seats what what was the culmination? Uh, what I think. Happens? What yeah, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, so after three weeks of training, um, the, so each trainer had to declare what they were going to do at the beginning of the study. They weren't allowed to deviate from that. So equipment and methods were described and they were submitted to a, an ethics committee, which was independent from the study, which was approved. Wow. They were allowed to train their horses for three weeks. And then at the end of the three weeks, they were assessed um, in terms of ridden um, performance. And that was in a, a ridden flat work test as well as a ridden obstacle test. Okay. And so the results essentially were derived from that. So we had heart rate and then we had technical performance at the end of three weeks. And the key findings were that um, during first saddle and first rider, which I've already uh, described to you as we know in the literature that these are key stressors, mm-hmm. Monty's horses had significantly lower maximum heart rates when compared to the conventionally trained horses. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, Monty also had lower average and minimum heart rates than the conventionally trained horse. Mm. Now, what's really interesting is that there is nowhere in the literature that I can find as yet which has shown that the heart rate during the application of the first rider is lower than the entire three weeks of training Mm. and including putting the saddle on the horse for the first time. So some of Monty's lowest heart rates were actually achieved when the horse experienced its first rider. Now, I think that's quite significant, mm. and that's never been observed um, in the literature where initial training of horses has been studied previously. Mm, so it goes completely counter to what the popular notion is about It stresses. does. I mean, yeah, I mean, what you would expect if mm-hmm. you believed, you know, the response to be as predicted by what's described in the literature is that you would put the first saddle on, that would result in an increase in heart rate, and then you put the rider on and the heart rate goes up even further. Well, we actually saw the opposite. So 
Monty's heart rates um, during the first saddle were 127 beats per minute. And then when he put the rider on, it went down to 76 beats per minute. Oh, my goodness. You'd think so, that that extra weight, that extra um, predator on his back, if if you want to use a you know horse language, uh, would would increase that. So, do you in this study do you extrapolate why you think that is, or do you just report? Well, we haven't uh, made too many interpretations of the data, other than to simply state what they are. Okay, um, because. It's difficult to know because we only measured heart rate in this particular study as well as, you know, technical performance. Um, in order to understand that more fully, it would, you know, we, we could look at other parameters well, such as cortisol and, you know, well, heart rate variability. More scientific. But you t- you said performance. So there was this, yeah. this these final days. How, how did that? So you had like a, you had a trek. You had, or you had a little obstacle course or something you had to go through. We What's, did. So we had, we had, yeah. So what we essentially did was we asked the trainers to present their horses um, at two on two final days. One was to present the horses for a ridden flat work test, which was essentially a very basic dressage test. Okay. Um, not involving any technical moves at all. It was, you know, trot a circle, walk a straight line, you know, those sorts of very low level um dressage training and the second day was a ridden obstacle course where there was you know a jump to do the horses had to walk through um various different obstacles they had to go through cones they had to back up they you know it was it was really maneuvering the horses feet around um the the arena but with the use of obstacles over tarpaulin you know those sorts of things mm-hmm. and um the that was all video uh, video recorded yes. and it was scored by judges who had absolutely no idea what we were doing they had no clue that the study was going on they watched the video and of each trainer and they were simply asked to describe um the way the horse um performed based on a very stringent criteria of, of and, and you know, how many days training at that point this was uh this was 20 days training 20 so it's after 20 training. days training yeah and so they rides. had like, no, not even twenty sorry. rides because how many rides would that be? Because you started off groundwork first because they never had a saddle on, or did did well, that that in itself is quite interesting because during the first seven days, Monty um, had joined up his horses on at least four occasions. He had saddled, bridled, longlined, and ridden all of them. <laughs> so obviously not himself. This was his his associate, he had a rider, trainer, uh-huh. which was Jared. And um, which also made it easier for for the video to be scored independently because nobody knew who Jared was. They didn't know that they were Monty Roberts trained horses and the judges had no idea who Phil was. So although he rode his own horses, um, no, he, nobody knew who he was. They didn't know the purpose of the study. They were just purely just uh, asked to describe on technical performance. Interesting. So it's it's interesting. So Monty had actually managed to ride his horses, and in the first seven days, he was out of the round pen and he was freely riding them in the indoor arena. Mm. Um, whereas um, the conventionally trained horses, they had been saddled, they had been bridled, and they had been lunged. But not all of them had been ridden by in the first seven days, um, and that probably reflects in the in the final test days in that there was there was two horses that didn't make 
they weren't presented for the final test um, because they weren't they essentially hadn't reached um, a stage at which the trainer felt that it would be safe to undertake the test. Now, those were so Mon- the, Monty's horses or Phil's horses? No, no, these were, these were conventionally trained horses. Okay. So Monty, Monty presented all of his horses. Every single one of them did the ridden test and every single one of them did the um, obstacle test. Whereas Phil's horses, he had two that didn't do the obstacle test because he felt it would be too dangerous mm-hmm. and one that didn't do the ridden um, test just because it hadn't had an, he hadn't had enough time yeah. um, using his methods to be able to get the, those particular horses to a stage at which he felt it would be safe mm-hmm. and fair on the horse to do the test. So, so it sounds like at least in this group, in this controlled environment, um, if you were to choose which training method you would want to use on your baby, your new, your four-year-old horse, what would you use? <laughs> Fair question. <laughs> well, you're, you're making me get off my fence now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, stay fair. Never mind. I'll ask Jen. Um. <laughs> this is very interesting for me to listen to because um, having been a Pony Club member for many a year and a graduate, I am very, very familiar with what is being referred to in this conversation as the traditional method. Yeah. And like any training method, when used by a human, you can do it well or you could do it poorly. But even when it is done extremely well, it lacks the same effectiveness and the same universality that the language of Equus does in that some of those horses flunk out. They basically flunked out. They didn't get to the end to take the test. They flunked out of school. Whereas using the language of Equus, none of the horses flunked out. Every single one of them passed the course and they didn't have to grade on a curve. Yeah. That's that's right. That says a lot to me in that by using the horses in a language, we are literally setting them up for success and providing that the human holds up their end of the bargain. Right. You're going to have 100% success. I love it. That's right. And, and another thing, I mean, it's interesting that you, you've put that in the context of horses, but it's exactly the same with children. If you enforce a, a one style only teaching, you will find exactly what you described. Some will succeed, some will drop out. And, you know, the the British Horse Society's method, um, and it's had to be this way because this was how army horses were trained, mm-hmm. is that... Um, it's very rigid. You know, there, there is very little flexibility. Everything is done the same and you roll this horse in and then the next one comes in. And it may, the only difference with the British Horse Society is that you have more time if you want to consider it that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas Monty's method, it's got a lot more flexibility. You can apply it on an individual um, horse basis. You're learning more about that horse as you go through the process in that you're observing it, you're observing its response, you're, eva- you're evaluating what you're doing at every step mm-hmm. rather than just following protocol. Yeah, and so- yet, yet Dr. Robert Miller would say in his book, and it, some people can look him up too, that it actually sounds like you're saying there's an efficiency in it even though it flows with the individual. Yeah, that's right. And, mm-hmm. and you can see that reflected in the results of this study in that Basically, Monty's method over 20 days of training was more efficacious because Mm -hmm. he presented all of his horses at the end of the study. The welfare of those horses, as defined by heart rate within this study, was 
um, significantly better yeah. than the horses being trained using a more rigid type of approach. Yeah, fascinating. So thank you, Veronica. That is just amazing. I, I, you know, I've never heard it succinctly put in one description like this. I've heard drips and drabs out of it. And we, I hope there's a documentary on this sometime. That's because why I know she's that- a scientist, Debbie. Oh, she's good. Isn't she? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I feel we, smarter in her presence. <laughs> or or the opposite with me. I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of like, I don't know anything about this. This, well, but this is I'm, fascinating. I'm really I never knew. I knew that there had been a study done, but mm. I didn't know how it worked. And, and when they write these things out in science magazines, my eyes tend to glaze over about the second paragraph. No, but I, having I, Veronica, who's a horse person, right. explain it to us in terms in accurately because you were involved in the scientific study but in layman's terms and horseman's terms it makes so much sense it i totally get how the study was done and how the re, you know what the results were and and the data that was uh, collected fascinating yeah. stuff gold yeah, stars and sparkles you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Veronica. I, re- I do appreciate you just purging that, too. And we'll have to have you back on to talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing over there in the UK, too, because there's more exciting things coming down the pipeline, I know. And there's more questions that I had on my piece of paper here to ask you, too. And we do want to keep up with uh, the direction you're going because we think it advocates for the horses, and that's why we're here. Yeah, and it, it, it provides a channel to access information mm-hmm. where you might not necessarily go looking for it so it's, it's you know these sorts of um, interviews that you're doing I find wonderful because it's a different way of communicating it's a different way that people access information and um, you know I, I find it really valuable great well I hope everybody will share Veronica uh, tell people about Horsemanship Radio and the Horse Radio Network and uh, and get this information out there so that we can uh, be better for our horses yes Thanks very much. We all hear about omega-3 and how important it is for your horse's nutrition. But why? Well, simply put, horses were created to get all of their nutrition from live natural grasses. Omega-3 is an essential fat found in many types of live grasses, and it's critical to the horse's health. If they were living on live grasses 24-7, they would be receiving enough omega-3. But in today's world, most horses are fed commercial feed and forage as their primary nutrition, and most of these are lacking in omega-3. That's where Omega Fields comes in. All of Omega Fields' flax-based products provide a balanced essential profile of omega-369 and may be helpful in alleviating problems related to skin, coat, hoof, joint, and sand colic. One of Omega Field's terrific products is Omega Horse Shine. Omega Horse Shine is an omega-3 stabilized ground flaxseed supplement for horses to help maintain a shiny, healthy coat, strong, solid hooves, and top performance for horses in all life stages. Omega Fields provides the best human-grade, non-GMO ground flax that can help horses with dry, scaly, itchy skin, joint pain and inflammation, poor hoof growth, allergies, and more. Don't just listen to Debbie and I. Alexandra, a customer of Omega Field, says any horse I ever own, I will feed them Omega Horse Shine and I will recommend it to anyone. You can get your Omega Horse Shine today at omegafields.com or just for our listeners, get 15% off using the coupon code MONTY2015. All one word, it's MONTY2015 for 15% off your next order at omegafields.com. That's omegafields.com.
Monty Roberts needs no introduction to this radio show, but I'd like to put a, a special slant on what he did to be put in this episode with Dr. Veronica Fowler. Monty Roberts in 1989, as a lot of you might know, uh, was asked to join the Queen over in England uh, at the castle to demonstrate his methods that he had uh, quantified called join up. For him, it was the language of the horse. In actuality, it was a process that he put a horse, a young horse who'd never had a saddle bridle rider on, uh, into a 50-foot across round pen and demonstrated how a wild horse can go from gentle and accepting of its first rider in about 30 minutes. It so impressed the queen that she said, you must go on tour. And he did that in her car with my mom, Pat Roberts, and with his rider, Sean McCarthy. And they did that for several months and did it for a couple years after that every year. Uh, but then she said, there must be a book. And so then the book became The Man Who Listens to Horses, which spent 58 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and really revolutionized the way people thought about training horses uh, without pain or violence. And really, no one has looked back since. It's changing a 6,000-year-old tradition of training horses with a kinder, more compassionate and humane way. Well, welcome back. Hi, Monty Roberts. Hi, Dad. How you doing? You all right? <laughs> yeah, good, good. We were excited to get you back on because I know you're in the midst of your summer uh, explosion of courses at Flag is Up Farms and uh, you've got a lot going on and they've got uh, Jamie Jennings uh, is coming in for August and you've got some people coming back for your Gentling Wild Horses course. So some some parts are old home week and some are brand new adventures. So what do we have to look forward to in the Gentling Wild Horses this year? Well, you know, I never know because they're wild, uh -huh. um, but they are bringing in quite an array of, of horses with varying degrees of wildness, um, all the way from completely Mustang to uh, horses that are just uh, untrained and off the pasture, you know, and so yeah. it, it's going to be good. Um, and uh, we we have one coming from the Queen Stables that um, a will student. add to it. A not a horse. Girl. Yeah, yeah. Not a, not a horse. No, yeah. a student. <laughs> yeah. A, yeah. A young lady that, that has shown a tremendous propensity to learn and and a desire to get good. So Fantastic. it'll be fun. It is fun. I mean, it was so fun last year and just a real breakthrough in the in the courses that you offer, I think, too, having to be a Mustangs and then Random, who was, some people can listen back on some of those episodes, but he was an amazing uh, abuse yeah. case. Yeah, yeah, uh, he was. And, um, you know, we have Joanna Lowe's coming back from uh, right. Wales. Right. And um, Joanna was, was on the course. That was the first thing that she did with us last year. And subsequent to that, I had a word with um, John uh, Whitaker, the leading show jump rider of the world, I guess you would say. He's the paternal leader of show jump riders. And um, <laughs> it's it's so great to be in this position because I simply said uh, she just would love it if she could come and work for you for a couple of weeks and he just looked at me and he said, if you recommend her, I'll take her on for a couple of months. And so she's had a chance to start his babies this year and she's just flying about it. So well, she should be. That's fantastic. And she's so talented. But ha have you got a progress report with the Whitakers yet? I got an enormous progress report. Uh, John Whitaker said, I'm a man of few words. 
she is terrific. Um, she's um, brilliant, he said. So it was, uh, you know, that's a good enough report from me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. She's a good horse. That's fantastic. Well, the reason I wanted to have you on, there's a lot of stuff flying around the social media these days about training. It seems to me there's, uh, you know, there's the camp over here that says stuff cookies down their throats and, and have no discipline. And then there's the, the other side of the spectrum, which seems to be, you know, get them before they get you, uh, whack them and then, you know, rub it off. It didn't happen. And, and there's just all kinds of craziness out there. And, you know, I know that I, you believe that horse training has become more transparent, less mysterious in the last 24, 20 some years, but I'm more confused than ever about how people choose <laughs> trainers. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, do you, do you think this transparency is good for the industry or how does, how does the person who's just gone into horses in the last couple of years, how, how do they find their way? Well, I think it's terrific uh, for the industry. As you well know, I am not a technical person, um, and so I, I don't understand how a telephone can make a video for you and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, nothing is hidden these days. Uh, transparency is not only the order of the day, but it's unstoppable. Uh, everybody knows what everybody's doing. It's just incredible. And, and that's that's ultimately going to be a good thing, Debbie, because and I've said all along that people hid their eyes for 6,000 years and they just said, bring him to me when he's trained and, oh, I don't want to see that and things like that. Well, today, you know, you, you, you have to see what's going on and there will be this disparity. There will be, it's an inevitable thing that some people will say, oh, I never want to do anything to him that would cause him to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, they'll make lap dogs of horses. Yeah. Um, that's that's one mindset that we have to deal with. That's totally unfair to the horse. Absolutely unfair. What you're doing is saying that the horse ought to become more human-like and will just take him out of his own elements and his own instinctual characteristics and will we'll cause him to be a lap dog. And ultimately it will cost him his life probably because he he doesn't know how to be a lapdog, doesn't want to be and shouldn't be. On the other hand, there are still these people and they're proving that we have a lot of work to do yet because there's these people that are steadfastly stating that you have to hurt him before he hurts you. Um, if you don't hurt them, They'll eventually attack you and hurt you and all these things. So you got to get a whip and beat them. And they say some horrible things uh, about the comparison of a horse and the children that they would love to beat up too, because every child, particularly the boys, they need a good beating every now and then um, just to keep them straight. Mm. And you and I both know that that isn't the answer. Violence is never the answer. So uh, where is all this? Well, the more transparency you have, the more likely we are to start bringing people to the middle somewhere, making sense and causing common sense to win out in the end. Uh, the ones that aren't against discipline of any kind will eventually go to the emergency room and uh, get their cast on 
and say, mm-hmm. I never want to be around horses again. And yeah, that's, that's a shame. That's, that's yeah. probably a good thing uh, that they're not around horses again. Not a good thing that they have a cast on, but uh, I don't want anybody to be hurt. But I also don't want the horse to get the blame because right. it, uh, horses shouldn't have the blame for anything. They're flight animals. And uh, we we must get finished with this blaming them for it. Yeah. And you're blaming them when you get a whip, too. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy with the way things are going, although I'm totally frustrated with how long it takes to get there. <laughs> no. Yeah, you've been at this a while. How long have you been out uh, pounding the clinics? You've been out in no, public well, I haven't. I haven't been at it that long. Okay. Uh, Debbie, I'm 81 years old. And it's only 27 years that I've been uh, taking my case to the public. So I'm a child yet. And uh, I I was just this morning working with a man who's a tremendous horseman, I think, um, and and explaining to him the shortcomings that I see in myself and blaming myself for taking so doggone long to learn uh, about these things because I come up with things that I don't know time after time and it's exasperating, but it does take time. And the bad news is that it takes a long time to learn. The good news is that if you keep at it, you'll ultimately learn it. Okay. So, uh, so we just I'm have to keep you healthy is what you're saying. Cause you're peeling that onion back. But so when you learn something new, is it usually driven by the fact that you've come across a horse that you've just never quite seen before or is it do that you recognize something in a horse just serendipity if i learn something new debbie it's 99 percent of the time some horse that finally got through to me um they've been trying to teach us <laughs> for six thousand years right and and really i mean it's nature i, I don't want to be facetious about it because they haven't actually consciously been trying to teach us but their nature, their their instinctual behavioral patterns mm-hmm. have, in fact, uh, been working on our brain to try mm-hmm. to get us to understand them better. And, um, man, we, we are a tough set of students. Okay. Yeah, this is why we say horses are such good teachers. I think when people understand that, it's because they are just honest. They're just in the moment telling us what's right for them and what's wrong for them with them and uh, for them from you. Uh, so I think that's yeah. what you mean is that they're just reacting. That's all they've got They're They can't yeah. tell a lie. So, yeah. And what would, how much better off would we be if, if none of our teachers could lie and most of our teachers can lie and a lot of them do lie. Um, some of them lie without even knowing they're lying or else, promulgate a, a falsehood, if you will, even right. though they they think it's probably the way to go. Uh, we can be, you know, consciously driven to a particular conclusion without having the evidence to back it up. And uh, that, that that's a lie, too, of sorts. Okay. So horses can't do that. They just state their case. And I, I, I like to say it's like the child that says, Mommy, that lady has an ugly dress on. Oh, and, right. <laughs> uh, and And the mother will say, you can't say that. And the child will look at her like, why not? It's really ugly. Look at it. It's awfully ugly. But that's the power of childhood because they have an open brain. And a child of, let's say, three, four, and five 
are very horse-like. They're mm-hmm. very much like the patterns of behavior that we see in Equus. Because they just act on the moment. Yeah. Well, and they, they it, act on the moment and they have no axe to grind. You know, they, they, um, they just simply don't try to twist the facts. They go with the flow. And uh, I, I, I just love it. Uh, working with horses. Um, it's frustrating to work with a lot of adults that um, <laughs> have their own agenda and try to twist things around. That's it's difficult. It. And that's the frustration that a lot of people feel, and it drives them to dominate and forcefully attempt to train adults, which we've seen uh, recently in some of these people that just go off the deep end and start talking about beating up children and beating up adults and and advocating for the death of adults uh, so that they're not around in the horse business any longer. Um, It's really, it it takes me back, you know, it really stops me cold. It does. It sounds like the 50s, doesn't it? Uh, Back to the days when a few trainers were really the, the gods and they kind of told you. Do you think that they really do believe that the horse has an agenda? Um, or is this just anger that uh, it's been taught into them because that's the way their daddy did it? Well, they seems both, to be angry. Both ways, so. both ways, both ways. In England, you say uh, he's taking the Mickey. Taking okay. the Mickey means he's he's faking it. He's trying to just uh, get his way by faking it. Yeah, mm-hmm. talking about the horse. He's taking the Mickey. Um, over here, we'll say he's just uh, he's just being a jerk, you know, and and he needs the hell beat out of him because he's he's just uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't really want this. He's just doing it because he that's the way he is. And his mother was the same way, you know. They often will say <laughs> the mother was the same way, and uh, the mother happened, happened to train to be trained the by the same yeah. guy, <laughs> right. and and uh, and they ultimately respond in the same way. And they really do. The mother was the same way. It was human failure that got her that way. Yeah. And in yeah. every case, it's human failure. I say every case. I suppose there's one-tenth of one percent that are born with some gene for being aggravating. But most, 99% of all horses um, are responsive to good training and just as responsive to bad training. Uh, one thing gets you good results and the other gets you bad results. And those trainers that are consistently getting bad results, they're doing bad training. Yeah, yeah. So you did something interesting a few weeks ago. You went off to Las Vegas to speak at a conference uh, uh, called Bark Busters. It's a group of uh, trainers of dogs. Why did they invite a horse guy? to come talk to a group of dog trainers. Well, yeah, generally it's the female of the pair, you know, and, and it was this lady that loves horses too and uh-huh. read my books and saw a very strong similarity between what they do with dogs and what I do with horses. And um, she was the one that coaxed the father or the, the, the husband into uh, inviting me to come. They have a daughter that loves horses too. So there was there was an element there that was um, similar. Um, it turns out that they have created a global organization, a lot of trainers of dogs, 
that are very similar in mindset to what I do. A really nice group of people. And Debbie, they took me on like I was a long lost son. It was unbelievable how good the response was to the things that I had to say. And you know why it was so good? It was so good because they've heard other horse people saying silly things about Mm. using the forceful discipline and stuff like that. And they don't do it with dogs. I don't know what they do, really. But uh, when they say they do not use violence, when they say that they get good results and they build a large organization because they get good results, then they impress me. And so I went to do it. I didn't. I'm not stepping into the world of dog training, believe me. Oh, and I'm, okay. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to. Tell At 81, you were going to take a little left turn in your career. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although well, my good. wife I, is, I, uh, is going nuts with it. She, she is. She's the reigning and and mom have gone together for the last couple of years. She's doing really well. I'm proud of her, right? Yeah. 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 Well, amazing. The reigning, yeah, but what about her dog? Oh, yeah, that's true. She has both going. <laughs> oh, she goes to more dog shows now than she does horse shows. It's well, that might be incredible. true. <laughs> she's doing found pretty a, well. She found what we'll call a good dog. <laughs> yeah. And she, and she loved every dog she ever had, and they, they were good dogs, but this one is pretty special. He likes the agility, yeah. He's really good at that, too, yeah. Well, uh, I, I wanted, before you go, I, I wanted to tease us a little bit about what you were working on this morning because this to me is going to blow the lid off a lot of early training with horses and I think it'll make some long-time trainers sit up and take notice I think. Yeah I'll try to be as lean as I can with this explanation because it, okay. it isn't an easy one to explain but um, dressage riders will work two to three years to get a horse to move off their leg. Why do they have to work that long? Because it's the tendency of the horse to go into pressure and not away from pressure. That's what they're born with. And it has to do with canine predators. If they, if they go away quickly from the biting of a flank, the dog just rips the skin and the intestines come out and the dogs, the whole pack has lunch. Dogs have to live too. So I'm not being terrible about that because uh, in the wild, that's the way it is. But anyway... Here we go training horses. We ride for two or three years before we ask a horse to change leads, flying changes, that is, at the canter the full time. And why do we wait that long? Why do the dressage trainers wait, wait that long? Well, they don't start riding them till they're three or four. And then they work that long to get them to change their innate behavior to move off the leg. Then they can push over and change the lead behind. Otherwise, you get disunited or left lead in front, right lead behind and vice versa. So, when you stop to think about it, the Western Division, the show jumping and stuff, and you get all the way over to the other end of the spectrum and you come to the racing thing, when does the racehorse get to learn to move off pressure? Well, he doesn't because the legs never even reach there. If you ride him for six years, you still don't teach him to go off pressure. Racehorses don't learn it. So, the first time they ever uh, confront pressure into their flanks is when they go in the starting stall and the foot rails in there jab them right in the flanks. Mm -hmm. So they go into that pressure and they lean over and their feet go way off to the side and they look like a 45 degree angle standing in the, in the starting gate. And it is true that 
of all the racehorses at least lean on the starting gate rails. So if they're leaning there, they have to straighten up before they can start. That costs them one length per race. So I've discovered that if we could, at 12 to 14 months of age, if we could teach the horse to move away from pressure with an object of some sort, not to cause pain, but just blunt pressure, if we can teach them to move away from that pressure instead of toward the pressure, and the way that you do that is to reward them by taking the pressure away every time they step away from it. And it takes a while. I had fun this morning with it, and we had six or seven horses that were just seriously into pressure and uh, convinced this uh, owner of lots of horses that uh, all of his babies ought to be trained uh, to go off pressure. Because then when they go to the starting stalls and they go in, the rail touches them, they come off. I'm only 32 horses into this. This has just been taught to me in the last uh, 90 days or so. Right, and who did the teaching? Stupid. What? Who did the teaching? The horses? The horses? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the horses did well we had a filly over there in england um belongs to her majesty the queen and she was so into pressure it was unbelievable she was a nuclear bomb about it yeah <laughs> and she had injuries to a lot of people before yeah. i ever met her but she mm-hmm. learned quickly and then we put her in the starting stalls and she bumped each side a little bit and then stood in the middle and we opened the gate and out she goes so I, I think I'm on the right track, and I'm 32 I horses know. into it, and I need to be 3,000 horses into it before I know for sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm working hard. I want to go to Lexington, Kentucky, and I want to uh, have a meeting with the Farm Managers Association mm-hmm. and show them these things. It, it'll be fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you. for t- That was more than just a, a little thumbnail. Thank you. It made sense, I think, in can the... You, can you yeah. say groundbreaking... Can you say this is like the best thing that happened to racing since since the starting gate? Yeah, this, this, exactly. is, this is yeah, and 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 remember that I rode out of a starting gate in 1944. It was a Model T, that's for sure, a terrible thing, and they were just experimenting with it at the time. But I personally rode through a starting gate in races in 1944. In by 46, we had the electric one that's powered by batteries and so all the gates open flew open at the same time and i rode in 46 47 48 and i started getting too big in 48 49 but anyway um i know starting gates like the back of my hand or i thought i did and Mm -hmm. it's so stupid of me not to figure out that they should have been trained off the rails all this time and i am the number one man Rails in them, right? They all, all the world over. Always had, always had rails in them. Yeah, and and uh, I am the first name of a of a living modern day horse handler that you'll find if you go to that Wikipedia or or, or Google <laughs> starting gate. I'm the first name. I didn't know that till yesterday. It's incredible. Uh, I didn't even know I was in there at all. But there I am because I have done more horses globally than anybody else. And I'm the inventor of this protective blanket. But remember that that's fixing the problem after the fact. The the, the blanket protects them from the rails. But they don't need protection from the rails if they don't want to fight the rails. So if we train them early not to fight the rails, yes, it'll be the breakthrough measure uh, adapt, adopted by the racing industry that will be number one, in my opinion, 
since racing started. Boom. There we go. Yeah, no, I, you know, I can't wait to actually put this in the hands of like a Trevor Denman and some of these people who have influence and Kentucky and get you, get you on the road with that, because that is a gift. That is a total yeah, gift and, to the industry. And I got a cold shower this morning because our camera lady who oh. does all of our lessons and stuff, she says, Oh, you get ready. They're going to come after you. Cause you've got that cane with a tennis ball on the end of it. You've oh. got that cane <laughs> and they're going to think you're beating this horse up when, when you do this. And all it they is, it's a cane that I, I put place on the flank of the horse and they come into it with a tennis ball on the end of it. So it can cause no pain. It's blunt pressure. Just pushes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's like and the heel of your right boot. It's it. very much like the heel of your boot, really. It's, if you, if you push, yeah. if, you could, if you could push that hard with the heel. Yeah. Of the if you could push that hard. And so yeah. they'll push into you and push you over and maybe even kick you because it's what they've learned to do to survive from the canine attack. Right. But anyway, when they step away, oh, you take it away and you reward them and uh, give them a stroke. And then you go to the other side and do the same thing. And it takes three to six sessions with this 32 that I've done. Three to six sessions, you've got it. They, they will step away with just a touch, but they just have to be shown that that's where they get the reward. Yeah, that's it. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for that tip. Got any next week? Well, <laughs> any other know. discoveries that will change the world? <laughs> just we're here. We're here to yeah. record them. Well, no, horses, thank you for that. It's, it's, for it's, you know that there's, they tell me there's over 7,000 equine science courses around the world now. And mm-hmm. there, we haven't found one course that has a module on into pressure. And to me, it's the most important uh, characteristic that the equine has uh, in terms of learning how to train them. Uh, it is a, a negative, that's for sure, but all they have to do is be shown that there's another way and they'll adopt the new way if that's where they get the reward. Right, proven. Proven because people have been changing leads and doing different things in training forever uh, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we'll get the horse to adapt the end to pressure to us. We don't ask yeah. them to do it the other way around. So yeah. that's already yeah. a proven a proven concept. So, all right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I'll let you get back at it. I know you've got more work to do today. We do. Yeah. We have a lot more work to do today yeah. and it's hot. <laughs> in California. It's really hot here in, in the middle of summer. Thanks dad. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you at Monty special training. Next week. Give my best to all six listeners. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, shh. How many <laughs> listeners do you have? How many do we have, Jennifer? Oh, you're asking the wrong gal. There are the, the <laughs> lots. We just have lots and lots of listeners. More than six. I think the, well, uh, yeah, well, more than six. I think at last, I think at last, um, we can cut all this out. Uh, at last, uh, pair, uh, the graphs and things that uh, Glenn sends me, I think it's 40,000. Oh, that's good. That's a bigger yeah, audience than I've ever had. Well, um, let me just tell you that um, I'm I'm so excited about this that I, I want the world to know about it. And um, and I I knew that you had more than six listeners, but um, even if even if you didn't, if it was just six, I would be happy because I, I'm able to start the ball rolling to get it out there. And you know, um, it, it, it's it's incredible. Um, 
how these things get hidden for so long. And, and, and now I'm able to bring it out and I'm, I'm rehearsing on you as to how to present it. I know. I know. You know what That's I think is really favorite. funny? The, this whole conversation began with transparency in the, the culture, the equestrian culture. And yeah. depending upon who came, who came upon this light bulb moment, if we use a blunt object to gently put pressure on a horse and teach him that moving away from the pressure is a reward at an early age, he will start from the gate better. And he will also start from the gate with less stress. Depending upon yeah. who came across that, that may have been also hidden away. And the yeah, only people who exactly. would know about it were certain people because it would yeah. give them an advantage at the track. But because you yeah. discovered it, everybody gets to know. Well, exactly. And, in, and I discovered it at a time when the technical aspects of our lives will allow it for a lot of people to know. And think That's how many right. horses will be improved in their life. Oh, the, Buy it. especially and, the ones that, that have the meltdowns. Those horses are yeah, a lot well, more likely to have a successful life. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place than Dear Monty, my Western horse's gait is rough. How can I appear to have a good seat in the show ring? Monty's answer. There are two major factors involved when it comes to presenting a pleasing appearance on a Western horse while sitting at the trot. They are the gait of the horse and the ability of the rider. Third, there is a minor facet, and that is the equipment that is used. While the gait of the horse is inherent property, there are things we can do to modify it. When a western horse trots in a rough, pounding fashion, he is typically far worse the faster you trot. If one can concentrate on training your horse to trot very slowly, the roughness is reduced dramatically. The rider can improve the look of the trot by carefully studying all of the factors involved in sitting smoothly while trotting. The rider's ankles usually play a significant role in acting as shock absorbers at this gait. The knees, thigh muscles, and certainly waist and upper body can all be trained to provide a judge with a more aesthetically pleasing picture. Equipment, while a relatively minor factor, can also come into play in an effort to cause the trot to look smoother. A very low cantle will generally accentuate the bouncing motion of the rider's posterior. A saddle that is slightly more elevated in front and rear will help a rider to appear more comfortably nestled at the trot. Loose clothing with fringy projections would tend to accentuate the trot. Even the hairdo will sometimes magnify the roughness of the horse's gait or cause it to seem smoother. A western saddle that has a deep, softly padded seat will allow for a smoother looking ride than a sleek, hard leather one. It should be sure that all loose saddle strings and other appointments to the saddle are firmly fixed in place so that you see less movement as you view the overall picture. One should be ever mindful of the fact that a firm, fit, healthy human body is far easier to present as attractive while riding than a body that is out of shape. Fitness has nothing but positives to offer humans and horses alike. Fit individuals tend to live longer and have healthier and happier lives. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips. Hi. I'm Monty Roberts. 
and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider, it doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online too on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, back at Flag is Up Farms on September 24-25. It's coming up fast, the Riding with Respect. It's a weekend at Flag is Up Farms where you get to either bring your own horse or use one of the willing partner's horses and to learn what join-up is like in the saddle. And then Monty uh, gets on an airplane, flies over to England for, they're calling it the Living Legend Tour. He's worried about that a little bit. Why do I have to be a living legend? Of course I'm living. So October 15th, he'll be in Lancashire. October 21, he'll be in Hartbury. October 26th, he'll be in Surrey. October 29, Devon. November 3rd, East Yorkshire. And then November 5th, he finishes up in Lincolnshire. He is all over the map. And uh, we're, we're really happy to be on our 25th year of touring in England. I got a quick question. Riding with respect. Does, a, does someone who's interested in going to the riding with respect uh, class, is there a prerequisite that you have to have attended before you do that one? No, that's what's so wonderful about it. We don't even know who's going to show up, but we do gather a little information when they register, like their size. I know that's always a fun question, but they, you know, we have to match them with an appropriate well, yeah, size. If you're horse. five foot two, you don't want a 16 and a half hand horse. You don't right. need one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, it, you know, and if it's a big old guy who's six foot two, we'd like to have a little weather under him, you know, so. You don't want to be sitting on a 14 hand pony. Yeah. No, no, that wouldn't be right. So we do, we, fortunately we have a range of horses here and some people have opted to bring their own horses too. So that's all good. And no, we meet who we have at the, at the gate and we're happy to, it's been incredible all levels too. But do you remember that not everybody understands down to the ground what join up looks like in the saddle. And Monty's won nine world's championships. So he can go cross disciplines with whatever saddle. He always says a horse is a horse. It doesn't really matter what kind of girth or cinch or saddle you're putting up top there. Um, but this is in the saddle where there's no bareback pads. That's the only rule. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is in the saddle work uh, for <laughs> it's open to riders of English or Western disciplines. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whether you are a professional rider or an amateur rider. Absolutely. Whether you have your own horse to bring along or would like to use one of the willing partner's horses. That's right. Because right. we have people come from all over the world over for this. World. Mm-hmm. And this thing is available to anybody who wants to sign up. And you can get all of the details at MontyRoberts.com. Am I right? That's right. That's right. Or if you want to get more information from a real, live, and friendly human being, you can call... And for details about today's show, you can go to horsemanshipradio.com and we will have links to today's topics as well as photos and more information about our guests. And we love your feedback. Help us make this show better. We want to find out what you want us to talk about. You can go to Facebook at Monty Roberts. Just go to Facebook and put the little search bar at the top, Monty Roberts. Or you can go on Twitter and follow Monty on Twitter. Does he tweet while he's in England or does he have someone tweet for him? 
You know, I do all the tweeting out, but it's his, uh, you know, he either says put a quote in there or tell him where I am or whatever. So I actually push the buttons, but it's, it's, he's very involved. There we go. If you can follow, you can follow him on Twitter. It's Monty underscore Roberts, Mm -hmm. and you can get the app to have the Horsemanship Radio Show, as well as all the other cool shows on your phone with you, wherever you go. It's for iTunes or Android. Android. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. You can download it. It's free and easy to use. Yes, do that. That is the best way, you guys. And you, it's always in your face there as soon as you look down at the phone. And that's what I do, killing time all the time. I use it all the time because I'm in the car a lot, too. Yeah, so it's a, great, it's a great way to while away the hours on your commutes, isn't it? Oh, I'm telling you, because I do that three-hour commute each way, Ugh. each week. Ugh. Yeah, it's bad. Oh, it's just by LAX. It's not bad traffic at all. Pah! No, it's bad. So, and, and I make sure we thank our sponsors there who make us happen. And it's IFA.com, it's Omega Fields, and it's MontyRobertsUniversity.com. And be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. But girlfriends, until next time, have many happy horse hours. <laughs> 